You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 23rd of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. He just wants to try and blow this kind of thing up and make it about himself because he doesn't like being an equal amongst other leaders. He wants to be America first, Trump first, because that's what plays to his base. With the heads of the G7 preparing to assemble this year in Biarritz, will Donald Trump spoil it for everyone again? My guests Michael Binion and Vincent McAvenny will discuss that and the day's other news, including the usefulness or otherwise of Boris Johnson's Brexit runaround and how one Scottish university may have found found a constructive way forward with reparations. Plus, Monocle's creative director, Richard Spencer-Powell, and Monocle 24's executive producer, Tom Edwards, will be joining me to discuss a new look for the station. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Vincent McAvenny, UK correspondent with Euronews, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist with The Times. Let's start in Biarritz, which will tomorrow begin hosting the 45th conclave of the cartel of advanced economies known as the G7. It is reasonable to suppose that six of the G7 will consider the weekend a tolerable success if they can get through it without the seventh upending a floral arrangement because he can't have Sicily trying to make a horse an ambassador or declaring war on Ruritania. Even by Donald Trump's standards, he has been having quite a week of it. Also attending, of course, will be UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and two of the EU leaders who may have most to say about how, when or if Brexit happens. President Emmanuel Macron of France and Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany. Uh, Michael, first of all, does the G7 still really matter all that much? Not really. I mean, it's it's a useful place for people to meet and thrash out big subjects, especially things that are transnational, things like, I mean, they may talk about the fires in Brazil, for example, that may come up as a, as a new subject, or terrorism, or things of this kind, which they talk about anyway. But most of these countries all have very close links with each other anyway, and it's not a decision-making body in the way that the UN Security Council is. Uh, it's still nevertheless very useful and very important, and I think it's a sort of prestigious thing to belong to, and that's why Russia felt so bitter uh, at losing face in being booted out a few years ago. Uh, We will come back to that. As you correctly point out, it was the G8 until Russia got bounced after annexing Crimea in 2014. Um, But Vincent, to return to this one that is happening this weekend, Donald Trump, of course, flounced out of last year's uh, in Quebec after having thrown a tantrum because he felt like he'd been slighted by Justin Trudeau and feeling like you've been slighted by Justin Trudeau is is, is quite a reach in itself. But uh, how much will the other powers gathering feel like this is basically an exercise in Trump management. Like, let's just get through this. We maybe have to put up with him at one more next year. And then with a bit of luck, it'll all be okay. Yeah, it does feel like it will be like a group of children deciding what to do with the father that's got Alzheimer's on Father's Day. You know, that is the kind of scenario they are faced with. It is unpredictable. You don't know what will happen. That photo last year was so iconic of all of the other leaders standing over Trump as he refused the cable. Uh, so much so that we understand that Macron's saying he isn't going to do the normal cable this year. That will be scrapped in case of Trump not signing up to it. And I think if you look at individually, you know, he left last year's G7 blasting Trudeau, 
you know, to the degree that was crazy. And then cozies up for the next year, uh, all through the year with dictators repeatedly like Kim Jong-un. And these are meant to be America's allies. And, and his temperament this week has been very strange. We saw the Greenland. Uh, he wanted to buy it when that was declined. He then cancelled a state visit. Uh, he's going to be, I think, on difficult form. And part of his appeal to his base is going to these kind of events and deriding them, calling them an elite. And I think apart from all the grievances he has with individuals like Macron, the new digital sales tax that he thinks is damning American business, he just wants to try and blow this kind of thing up and make it about himself because he doesn't like being an equal amongst other leaders. He wants to be America first, Trump first, because that's what plays to his base. Uh, Michael, that does bring us nicely to, I, I know this is the eternal question where Donald Trump is concerned, but as, as, as Vincent correctly points out, he, he does enjoy creating a measure of chaos at these uh, gatherings of America and its nominal allies. Is there some cunning six-dimensional strategy going on here, or is Trump basically just a massive blundering idiot who has no idea how to behave in civilised company? Well, he's massive and blundering, but I wouldn't say an idiot. He's, it's quite carefully thought through on his part. I really? Mean, he, well, he's erratic, and he lets him... He, he, no self-discipline, but he knows, as Vincent said, the key thing is appealing to the base. I mean, it, everything he does now is focused on his re-election. That's all, that's all he cares about, and how to get attention. I mean, uh, not being talked about is the one thing that would really hurt him. Being talked about, being the centre of attention, good or bad, doesn't matter for him. And again... Um, Showing uh, showing a hostile face to the international community, saying it's America, America alone. We're not tied down by international agreements and treaties. That also plays to his base, and that's his idea and his philosophy, and that comes out in everything he does. Uh, Vincent, is it is it possible also, basically, and this this theory has been floated before, quite obviously after his uh, cancellation of the state visit to Denmark, maybe he just doesn't like travelling and will therefore continue to contrive excuses to avoid it. Well, I mean, he spent, I think, now 279 days on a Trump property since he's been president. I, he doesn't, I, I should, he have, doesn't I should have added the ride except to his own yes, golf courses. Yes, except to his own courses. He doesn't mind flying back and forth in Air Force One uh, to travel. But, I mean, I think he does actually like travel. He likes the big occasions. When he's on a state visit, when he came to London and got the full pomp and ceremony, he loved it. And he loved those pictures playing out at home. He likes, you know, when he went to uh, Japan, uh, when it was the transition with the emperor, he came home and talked to his base about how he was the special guest and it was actually all about him. So I think he does like it, but he doesn't like going... I was at the last G20 in, in Osaka. He doesn't like going where there's a lot of attention on other people, where it's not just him and he's in a room with people meant to be on an equal footing who are leaders when he considers himself, as he's said this week, in quite a strange clip, the chosen one. That is his new <laughs> reference to himself. So I think it's more that he doesn't like, you know, we knew with Theresa May, he thought that she was school teacherly. He doesn't like the fact that he can't go there. And it's not like a bilateral where he can use American superiority and dominance on all of these other economies. If they gang up together and they do try and coordinate, then they can overrule him and shout him down. And so then he flounces off early and sends tweets from the plane saying he had a bad time. Um, Michael, we will be talking later in the programme about how or if the, the G7 should respond to the wildfires in Brazil. But, but that, and certainly President Macron has suggested that the G7 should talk about it. But that aside, uh, and Trump aside, um, what else could and or should the G7 actually be constructively doing if it wanted to put this weekend to good use? Well, one of the things that they can do is look at underlying and chronic 
issues, things that go on and on and on and don't seem easily soluble, such as um, climate change, terrorism, money laundering, international crime, all these things that don't always peek up in the headlines because, you know, some incident happens, but this thing is still going on and on. And these uh, long-term issues where they really do need to coordinate what they're doing together, um, how do you tackle uh, illegal immigration, people smuggling, all that kind of thing, and setting up sort of frameworks that work with each other. That's important. Uh, the immediate issues that come up, I mean, every so often they have to say something about the Middle East where some latest flare-up has happened, or they have to say something about some other crisis somewhere else. That's all very well, but it's not necessarily the best place. I mean, the UN is probably a better place to say things about that. But uh, these underlying issues are where they can make a useful difference. Okay, well, let's move on slightly and look in detail at one of the participants at this weekend's G7. Uh, That is UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who still claims he can renegotiate the Brexit withdrawal deal, which he cannot, and that he is not interested in contesting a general election, which he clearly is. Earlier this week, Johnson visited Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin and President Emmanuel Macron in Paris. The latter meeting seems to have bequeathed little to diplomatic posterity, but a non-traversy about Johnson responding to a mild joke by Macron by briefly putting his foot on a table. More significantly, perhaps, Macron reiterated that the Northern Irish backstop, which Johnson once dropped, is, quote, indispensable, unquote. Uh, Vincent, did Boris Johnson's brief European making friends and influencing people goodwill tour actually change anything at all? Well, he does seem to have bought himself this 30-day window of time. And we're now at, I think, it's 69 days until Brexit. So 30 days to try and do something which Theresa May struggled to do over three years, to renegotiate a withdrawal agreement. The French and Germans have been playing kind of a good cop, bad cop, uh, with Merkel as good cop, Macron as bad cop. But they both seem to have softened and slightly fudged the language. They have said the backstop is uh, non-negotiable, but France has sort of said, well, we could have a bit of negotiation on the withdrawal agreement, but why don't you try and come up with a plan? And and what they're doing is clever because there is no other plan. Uh, You know, there are a range of ERG members on the backbenches saying, oh, we can have technology, we can have this and that, it'll solve it. A cross-party panel of MPs spent two years going around the world, looking at every border, trying to find a solution. There was none. Boris Johnson is not going to find anything in the next 30 days, and there is no technology that can do this job. I've been to that border on Northern Ireland. Uh, my, uh, you, you drive, and you literally only know which country you're in by the colour of the road signs, because it zigzags uh, through it. There are 160 crossings, more than the entire eastern flank of Europe. There is no technological solution. You will have to deploy something there. And the problem is that too many people in the Tory party, which are really pushing Boris on the backstop with the DUP as well, just aren't thinking it's not just the technical side. It is the feeling of Irish people, Catholic people in the north who do not see any form of border and so think that they live in Ireland. And the second there is anything, and there will have to be something because of the integrity of the single market and because of what Britain wants to do once it leaves the European Union, they will feel so aggrieved and we will see a dramatic flare up. And in a situation where you haven't had a working devolved parliament for over two years now, it really is on the cusp of going backwards. Uh, Michael, this, this 30 days thing, which was a seems to have been excerpted from a off-the-cuff remark by Angela Merkel and taken on a life of its own, uh, 
Brexit enthusiasts in particular seem to think that this was some sort of dramatic concession by Germany, that we will now allow you 30 days to come up with a solution. But is it not possible that Merkel was saying it more in the, yeah, fine, knock yourself out, see if you can fix this in 30 days, what the, you know, the best best guesses of experts have not been able to solve in three years? Yes, absolutely. I don't think that this is um, some brilliant new concession or new plan or anything that uh, the Brexiteers can say, well, here's an opportunity we didn't have before. No, she's just saying, uh, if you can think of something, practically, we only really have a month before we need to start implementing something. We have to put the whole process into sort of legal language and into action in order to be able to uh, have the final day on October the 31st. So you've got about a month to get it get it sorted, which is correct. Of course, the other thing that um, Boris Johnson's really uh, pondering is whether he should or could or might hold an election either before or straight after the deadline. Uh, he's got a majority of almost nothing, a one-seat majority. Uh, there is a likely rebellion in Parliament. Uh, even if he comes up with a deal, there still could be a rebellion. How to handle that? He could have a back-me-or-sack-me kind of thing election. You know, who, who is supreme, the government or Parliament? That all might come up. And, of course, that would really complicate the timetable. Uh, Vincent, I do want to talk about Footgate or Shoegate as a peculiar media spectacle because, of course, what happened clearly, if you watch the video footage, was that Macron made a mild joke to which Johnson played along with by tapping his foot briefly on what was either a table or a stool. But the extraordinary degree to which people looked at the still image um, and read what they wanted to in it, people who thought that Johnson was being a, you know, a, a boorish, unmannered oaf who doesn't know how to comport himself when travelling abroad and is therefore embarrassing, country, embarrassing the country, versus people who thought, yes, there's Boris Johnson sticking it to Johnny Foreigner, hurrah, rule Britannia. Um, what is going on there? Are people now just so divided on the subject of Brexit that they can only see what they wish to see in every story, every image, everything? Along similar lines, we have had the Daily Telegraph, uh, Boris Johnson's former employer, uh, when he was a rival of yours, in fact, Michael, in Brussels, um, and once a serious newspaper, uh, reporting Boris Johnson's tour of Europe in, in terms which would kind of embarrass the new service of North Korea. Yeah, I, th I think the Telegraph is going uh, very much into the cheerleader mode over the last few weeks for Boris. Uh, but I, th I think two things on this. One thing is, I've covered Boris Johnson for a long time. It is very strange watching how he's been acting in the campaign and as prime minister. You know, with Boris, you can tell where he's at with his hair. If it is wild, you're getting full bombastic Boris and he'll be ziplining and doing everything. But it's really matted down with a lot of product and he's trying to be really serious and really straight faced and somber and act prime ministerial. And I think he sort of forgot himself yesterday and made this joke where he sort of lifted his foot. And it got lifted out of context, as an image can do. Uh, but it kind of is also, on a second point, a bit about what he's like as, you know, we heard in the campaign the uh, argument with his, his girlfriend was about him, uh, you know, trashing a sofa with some wine. People are very funny about uh, putting your foot up in different cultures and different countries. Showing the underside of your foot is a terrible thing to do. And think, even Obama... It's, it's OK in France, though, I think. I think it's a funny one, though, because even Obama used to get blasted for... There was photos of once where his feet were up on the presidential desk and people went crazy on both sides saying it was a lack of respect to the office. And I think... It just there's this weird sort of being a house guest thing with it. Putting your feet on the furniture is widely seen as not being a very polite thing. And for Boris, really, since he was prime minister, uh, you know, it was the kind of first little gaffe that he made that was the old Boris coming through. 
Uh, I suspect it won't be the last. Um, Finally, though, today on the news panel, let's look at Glasgow, the university of which has offered to raise and spend £20 million to offset its mortification at discovering that many of its most generous 18th and 19th century benefactors had made their fortunes, at least in part, from slavery. The university will use the self-imposed programme of reparations to fund the Glasgow Caribbean Centre for Development Research in partnership with the University of the West. Indies. Um, Michael, I'll say from the top that despite having now we've written, produced and presented a couple of shows looking at the issue of reparations, I'm still not entirely sure what I think about it. Um, This individually, though, in and of itself, I can't see how this is a bad idea. This seems like a, a perfectly reasonable way of dealing with a legacy like this, doesn't it? I think it's very reasonable. I think it's sensible. The key thing is it's setting up something that in itself is of value, It's a way of ring-fencing some money, which might be very difficult to convince the Glasgow Senate to provide, uh, you know, the university governing body. Uh, It does them some reputational good. I mean, this is purely symbolic. I think it's, you know, after 200 years, it really is neither here nor there. But in the present climate of uh, blame and historical revisionism and all that sort of thing, it's it's a useful gesture. And I think it's a good idea. And the key thing is it doesn't go to people holding out their hand and saying, I want the money for myself because I'm a descendant of someone who was aggrieved or injured, you know, 200 years ago. So in in and of itself, it's a clever idea. Um, We should acknowledge, or at least I should have acknowledged up forward, of course, that we are three white men uh, having this discussion about the the rights and wrongs and logistics of reparations and and therefore may have a somewhat skewed view, view of it. But Vincent, is it surprising to you that this has become a quite serious issue, especially in US politics. It has floated around uh, as an idea for a long time, but it has been widely regarded as a somewhat cranky fringe position. But it is now being seriously discussed, uh, especially on the, the Democratic side of the aisle. Yeah, it has. It's been a real topic of debate amongst the candidates. I think it's interesting. These same conversations are happening in America. Recently, Georgetown University discovered that it had sold some 300 slaves in its past. And so they tracked down some of the descendants of those slaves, which now number thousands of people. And the students voted and the university body voted uh, to give them free college tuition at the university as well as reparation money. So this is something that I think a lot of institutions, not just universities, because there's be a lot more in the UK that took part in this, but institutions institutions like banks and everything were involved with. But it's interesting that, I mean, you know, you think back to 2008, Barack Obama was very clear this wasn't something as the first black president that he was interested in or wanted to go down and he kept well away from it. It's now interesting a decade on that actually the candidates are starting to embrace it. Some of them have been shifting their positions uh, and not often the ones that you would expect would be kind of more interested in this. Better Walk recently shifted his position. Kamala Harris is shifting his position. Cory Brook has put out big proposals. I think what will be really interesting, though, is one person who's going to have words come back to haunt him on this is uh, Joe Biden, who in the 1970s said, you know, I don't feel responsible for the situation and I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for something that happened 300 years ago. That kind of language could come back to haunt him because it does seem that more and more of the candidates are getting on board with this and the society as a whole is starting to look at this more closely. Hey, Michael, this is why I think this idea by the University of Glasgow is interesting because they've made it clear that the money they're raising is an entirely separate uh, enterprise specifically tied to their discovery of their relationship to slavery, which does seem to me at least to answer one of the questions raised by the idea of reparations, that even if you agree that people who have been disadvantaged down generations by structural injustice 
should be compensated, the question is always, well, who pays? And what the University of Glasgow seem to have come up with uh, is a way of saying nobody does who doesn't really want to. That's it. And I think that's very clever. I really applaud them. I think it's a great idea. And it's, uh, it's setting up something that actually will benefit where historically the whole problem originated, namely in the West Indies, where slaves were taken and were forced to labour in often terrible conditions. So uh, it's a very good idea. It's a question, though, that not only the University of Glasgow, but very many big firms, almost every big company in Bristol, for example, which is the main trading port in Britain, has been involved. And then you raise the question, well, how far back should we go? Reparations that go back three generations are obvious and immediate, and one thinks of four labor in Germany under the Nazis Mm -hmm. and the compensation paid to those uh, descendants of forced laborers, or indeed, uh, it's too late now for the actual forced laborers. But you do have to see where you draw the line. Uh, There was one thing just to point out, though, which I still think is remarkable, is that all three of us have paid reparations in our lifetime because Britain only finished paying off the loan uh, for uh, slave owners in 2015. We can t- that money, that £20 million in the 19th century, which at the time was almost half of Britain's budget, was paid to the slave owners and it took us until 2015 to pay it off. The fact that Britain paid reparations to the slave owners and not the slaves is something that I think is not well enough known in this country and that we paid it up up until the very recent past is quite remarkable. Vincent McAvenny and Michael Binion, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we will be hearing from Monocle's creative director and Monocle 24's executive producer about the station's new visual identity and other things besides. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Regular listeners to Monocle 24, like there's any other kind, will be aware that we have recently undertaken a tweak of our broadcasting schedule. There has also been an upbrushing of Monocle 24's look, as you can see by visiting our website or app, if indeed visiting is what one does to apps. Uh, Joining me with more on this are Monocle's creative director, Richard Spencer-Powell, and Monocle 24's executive producer, Tom Edwards. Um, Tom, first of all... Basically, what has changed? Andrew, there are so many exciting developments. Uh, I almost don't know where to start, but let's start kind of at the the top of the day. Um, Regular listeners will be familiar with our Monocle Minute, which is our email newsletter. Um, I think we've somewhat reinvented the newsletter. Um, People love this format, even though it's a little... By making something that's actually good, rather (laughs) than just a complete nuisance which clogs up your inbox. Eminently readable, exactly. And so what we thought we'd do is bring that to life in audio as well. So people can now hear the Monocle Minute or a slight sort of variant thereon uh, every morning and they can subscribe and listen live to, to, to hear that as well. Um, and that's also taking shape as a kind of a new a new news bulletin at the tops of some of our, our hours. So it's a real valuable addition to our kind of live show roster. Uh, obviously, uh, this brilliant programme is back. And there's various other kind of uh, tweaks. Remember, people will just hear that the whole sort of sound of the station, all the branding is a bit, has, had a, has had a real summer spruce up. Um, and we thought, look, obviously, Monocle 24 is all about the audio realm, or principally about that. But we also thought it was time to maybe look, being the operative word, at how the shows look, the tiles, the branding, the design of things, uh, the visual language, if you like, of something that is uh, an audio offer. Um, so that's also been something that we've looked at. And uh, I, for one, am very happy with the uh, with the outcome. Uh, Richard, which is where you come in, I guess. And 
I'll start with the basic question, because it is an intriguing one, or it intrigued me when I thought of it, which was, how do you begin deciding what a radio station should look like? That is a good question. Um, I think probably the starting point goes way back beyond being asked to design the, the new radio programme. It goes back to when we redesigned the magazine, and what happened then was... But a very rigorous process of stripping out things that didn't work and you just look at everything and work out, you know, what stays, what goes. And once you do that, you end up with a nice, smart, refreshed, tidy magazine. And that, unfortunately, then makes lots of other things look a little bit weary and a bit kind of dogged. So It's a bit like when you make the always terrible mistake of painting one room of your house. <laughs> yeah, or I've got it where I've got two boys and when I buy one brand new pair of Adidas Night Jogger <laughs> and the other one's got a hammered old pair of Stan Smiths. Those Stan Smiths never look more hammered than when those Night Joggers are in. But um, So basically, what has gone before on the redesign, the magazine starts to inform what you do on the radio and a lot of it is it's the old adage of make it simple, strip it out, um, just keep it clean and that's what we did. And also, we're a kind of a small brand but we do so many things and we work at such a pace that sometimes you really have to sort of stop and get your head above water to realise actually what we did five years ago, that's that's dated a little bit. And even though we try and design things to be timeless and long-lasting, still when you add and add and add and add over time, it starts to get a little bit too noisy. So the basically the, the, the brief was let's clean this thing up, let's have a system, let's make it really uneasy to understand when you look at it. And we looked at everything from the naming conventions to... What do we refer to Monocle 24 as? Do we call it M24? Do we call it Monocle 24? What do we call it internally? What do we, how do we project it externally? And just have a plenty of conversation before we actually kind of, you know, get onto pens and paper or mouse and screen. Um, so I, I was interested in that aspect of it, the, uh, as you say, the, the, the things you just forget to attend to and then you attend to them again and realise that seven years have elapsed since they were last looked at. Just the, if you if we bring it back to how the programs look on screen or on a phone, the little tiles which direct listeners to the podcast, how do you decide that something just looks a bit, I don't know, 2012? I don't know. I suppose it's like my 2012 trainers. I've still got them. I just I don't put them on anymore. <laughs> it's it, I think although we do classic design here with a bit of eye-catching things here and there, you know, a serif typeface will look good, looked good 100 years ago, or look good in 100 years. But it still just has to have a little bit of a freshen up. It's still, it's still, you get, I don't know, it's lethargy or something. You just, you in the, in the end, you just get a little bit tired of it. And, you know, we say things need to be timeless, but there's not that many things that are timeless. You do, you do have to kind of give things a little shift because it just get it just things become a little bit more eye catching and a little shift in direction i think can just inject a little bit of you know um enthusiasm into everything even if it is lots of small things i often think that's a good approach to tweak things 10% but on every kind of every aspect so whether it's the music you know a little shake up of the the schedule the graphic language even how we're presenting radio in print in the new magazine we've redesigned the contents page to go with that we'll redesign radio ads we'll put We've got plans to put posters into stores. So I think if you do 5% on lots of levels, it adds up to a lot more. 
Can I jump in and Please just say, do. Andrew, that I know you believe the end game of this overhaul is to have some kind of life-size cardboard cutout in the lobby of Midori House of you, Andrew Muller. That, that was you have literally preempted my next Le- question, which, on- which was: Does this get us any closer <laughs> to the life-size cardboard cutout of me in the lobby? Are you leaning on the, the column name of your of your radio column? Uh, Would it be apparently with Andrew Muller? Uh, or something no, like I, that? I thought I, I I could lean, for example, easily enough on the masthead of the foreign desk. True. In in a kind of wry palms up in the air, what are you going to do kind of expression. <laughs> Can I just say, it definitely means that's not happening. <sighs> Did you hear what Rich was saying? Clean, <laughs> clean, elegant lines. There's uh, no, not a, not a cowboy shirt permitted in that in that new uh, design language. Uh, I, I cannot help but notice that the foreign desk's little new tab is 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 blue. Is that something I should be taking personally? Yeah, navy from here on in, no pattern. Okay. No, I quite I quite like it. It's 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 smart. Um we should talk also very just briskly why we while we are here. Um because it is on a newsstand uh, near you or indeed our listeners shortly, which is issue three, I think we're up to of the summer newspaper. That is a thing that is happening, our annual uh run of four weekly summer newspapers. Um Richard, has the design of that evolved in the time we've been doing summer newspapers? Because weirdly that's become quite an institution just quietly, hasn't it? Yeah, it's evolved a bit because um, for the previous two summers I went to Greece and this summer I went to Spain while they were doing those newspapers. And, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is you absolving yourself of any and all responsibility. The grid was set up before I went and it's still in good shape when I got back. Um, it has evolved a little bit. Yeah, we try and push them on um, each time, um, evolve, not sort of reinvent. Um, and I think we've got better at them. More importantly, I think the editors have kind of really got into their sort of swing with it. Um, and I think these are some of the best ones we've ever done. We're kind of, yeah, three in, one to go. And then we will be doing more in winter. So, yeah, all good, I think. It's I should just say, I, obviously, I used to work on newspapers and the redesign of the newspapers, something we've talked about on our programmes like The Stack before, that you are always walking such a delicate line. And readers are very forgiving if they enjoy the evolution that you describe there, Rich, but you can get the slightest thing wrong. If you monkey around with the crossword, we're lucky we don't have one in our summer newspapers. You move that crossword, you'll never hear the end of it. Something for next year, perhaps, along with the cardboard cutout. For the moment, Tom Edwards and Richard Spencer-Powell, thank you both for joining us. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View returns at the same time on Monday. That's 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Miller. Have an excellent weekend. Mm-hmm.